Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. This morning, the government released the most important, the most highly anticipated economic release of the month, At least that's what everybody who trades just about any market believes, and that is the non-farm payroll report, the official scorecard on job creation and unemployment. This time it was for the month of September, the final month of the third quarter. And, of course, we're still waiting the uh, GDP estimate for the third quarter. By the way, the Atlanta Fed, which continues to do the interest rate limbo lowered the bar yet again today on Q3 GDP, which was 3.8% a month ago, you know, when Janet Yellen talked about how the case for a rate hike had been strengthening. And as of today, the Atlanta Fed is now down to 2.1%, down another notch. They're still politically trying to keep the estimate above 2%, although by the time we actually get the data, I expect it to be south of 2%. But the important news today was the jobs numbers. And people were looking for a strong report. I think the consensus was around 170,000 jobs. But, you know, most people were talking 190, 200. There were even some people that were looking for a number north of 200,000. And we got 156,000 jobs, which was certainly below what people thought. It was a little better than the prior month, which was originally reported at 151, they actually revised it up to 167. So now, based on the revised number, it's actually worse than the prior month. Now, even though they revised the prior month up, they revised the month prior to that one down. So the net effect of the revisions was a subtraction of jobs. Not that many, but it was a net subtraction. But this month was uh, disappointing. The unemployment rate, which was supposed to hold steady at 4.9, actually ticked back up to 5%. So now we got an unemployment rate of 5%. Average hourly earnings were supposed to rise by 0.3 following a smaller increase in the prior month of 0.1, which was unrevised. But this month we just got 0.2. So not quite as uh, big a gain as everybody thought. This was not a good report, and anybody who thought the Fed was going to hike rates in November, and I don't know what they were smoking if they thought that, but they clearly don't think it anymore. In fact, even uh, the Fed lapdog, Hilsenrath, over at the uh, Wall Street Journal, said that today's jobs report took a November hike off the table. I mean, I would suggest that the November hike was never on the table. To the extent it was there, it was only in the imaginations of people like Hilsenrath. But Hilsenrath says now, well, if the Fed's going to move, the most likely time would be December, but it's not a sure thing. And that's an understatement because the fact is it's much, the Fed is much more likely not to raise rates 
in December than raise them. But once again, you know, you need to know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, when it comes to the jobs numbers, because the headline doesn't really tell the story. You always have to look beneath the surface, which pretty much nobody wants to do, you know, maybe other than me and a few guys over at uh, Zero Hedge, right? They always do a good job of pointing out what's really going on in, um, in the jobs market. Number one, the big news was the net creation of part-time jobs. And I've been saying this for a long time, that the, uh, the big story is that we are simply replacing full-time jobs with part-time jobs. And when employers are hiring part-time people, they need more part-time workers because each one works fewer hours. So you're always going to have net job creation when you're transforming the economy from full-time to part-time employment. And that was clearly the case uh, this last month. Because if you look at the household survey, according to the household survey, we lost 5,000 full-time jobs in September and added 430,000 part-time jobs. So I would venture to guess that pretty much all of the net increase, the 150-odd thousand jobs, all that net increase is in part-time work. And if you look at the large jump in the number of multiple job holders, because the government reports that, the number of Americans who are holding down multiple jobs. And there was a big jump in September in the number of Americans that have more than one job. So obviously what's happening is people that have one job are getting a second job, or people that have two jobs are getting a third job. Obviously, if you've got two jobs and you get a third job, that third job is not going to be full-time. You don't have time for a, a full-time job when you're already juggling two jobs. So these are part-time jobs, and that is the problem. And nobody really wants to discuss this, but that is the reality. And also, again, when you look into the composition of the jobs, right, where were they created? What kind of jobs were people able to get, and where were they, right? Healthcare and education, uh, retail trade, leisure and hospitality, uh, temporary help. I mean, these are where all the part-time jobs are. We lost manufacturing jobs, 13,000 jobs. We, we lost jobs in transportation and warehousing. We uh, were flat in mining. Information technology, that dropped, or no, that we gained 1,000 jobs. But the high-paying jobs, we barely gained any. The only good news was that we lost 11,000 government jobs. I mean, the more of those jobs we lose, the better. But as far as higher-paying jobs, jobs that you can raise a family on, we lost those. And we gained more lousy, low-paying, part-time jobs. That is the story. It's the same story that we've been getting all along. And all it shows me is that nothing has changed, right? The job picture is not any brighter. Yes, the labor force participation rate did uh, notch up a bit this last month. I guess as all these part-time people re-entered the labor force, it ticked up a, a, a smidgen, but it's still extremely low. But to me, if the Fed has been reluctant to raise interest rates because of the lack of participation in the labor force because of the preponderance of part-time jobs and low-paying jobs. If that's really been the reason they haven't raised rates, then that hasn't changed, right? That's exactly the same as it's been.
Uh, so based on this data, there's no reason for the Fed now to suddenly raise rates either in November or December if they haven't raised rates at any point. Yet that hasn't stopped all of the pundits to continue to pontificate about the almost certainty that the Fed is about to raise rates, and it's only a question of when and, and by how much. And the markets continue uh, to trade as if a rate hike is coming. Certainly, the dollar has been strong. Today, it was weak against the, uh, the yen and the euro, although it did make new highs, uh, multi-year highs, against the pound. I mean, maybe you're like 30 or 35-year highs. I mean, the lowest a pound ever got, I think, was about 105 or 106 back in 1985. And, you know, we're not that low, but we're getting close to breaking 120. I mean, this is some serious carnage. But at one point last night, I looked at the pound and it was down about 5%, which is a huge move. And I saw that it was down as much as 8%. It was like a flash crash in the British pound. It regained most of those losses, but it still ended up closing down about 1.5% on the day, which is still a big move. But a lot of people obviously uh, got some stops run last night. So there was some big money lost uh, and obviously gained too because it's a zero-sum game. But uh, you know what I'm waiting for? One of these days, that's going to happen with the U.S. dollar. And it's not going to be a flash crash. It's going to be a real crash. Uh, but it shows you that major currencies can take big moves. But the dollar, again, has been firm. Even though gold was up today, it was only up a few bucks. Uh, so it barely recovered losses that it had earlier in the week. Gold's only about 1257 now. I mean, we were above 1300 I think, when the week began. Silver only up 24 cents to 1753 That's despite the weaker than expected non-far payroll numbers, despite, you know, another notch down in the GDP estimates by the Atlanta Fed, because people are still, you know, wedded to this narrative that the Fed's going to raise rates. Why? Why should they raise rates in December even? I mean, they, why? maybe because they raised them last December, so they're going to do it every December as kind of like a Christmas present to the people that expect a rate hike that once a year they throw the markets a bone. I mean, I doubt they're going to do that again because, you know, they didn't like uh, the gift that they got in January. Remember when they raised rates last December and the markets got off to the worst start ever? You think they really want to risk doing that again? You know, they raised rates another quarter point. The markets uh, collapse and now they got to backtrack again and talk about how they're not going to raise rates again. I mean, do you think they really want to do that same thing again? I think they potentially learned their lesson, although, you know, the Fed rarely learns a lesson. They just make a mistake. And then when something doesn't work, they just make the same mistake over again. So they may, in fact, do that. But anybody who's actually looking at these numbers uh, would come to that conclusion. But, you know, also, when we got the jobless claims numbers that came out yesterday, and it was another drop, it, the, the, the weekly claim was 249,000. And I think that was, again, the lowest level in, I don't know, like 40 years or 45 years. I mean, some crazy amount of time, right? This We've never had weekly claims this low in almost the entire time I've been alive, right? And when that number came out, too, there was a spike up in the dollar, and gold dropped about 10, 12 bucks almost immediately because, ah, this was proving that the Fed is going to raise rates because the unemployment claims are so low. Look— They've been low for years. I mean, this is not a new thing. Just because this is a new low for 45 years, I mean, we were we were almost there. I mean, it's only only a couple of uh, thousand uh, claims lower than the new low that we had uh, the week before.
I mean, if the Fed was going to raise rates because of low unemployment claims, then why did they raise rates years ago? Because this has been going on for years. Now, everybody is looking at these numbers at face value. But how can it be? I mean, does anybody really think that we have the strongest labor market, the best labor market in like half a century? Does anybody really believe that? Of course not. I mean, if uh, Hillary Clinton believed it, she wouldn't be running as an, as an agent of change. She would be four more years. We want to continue this great economy. We want to continue these great policies because we've got the best labor market in, you know, in, in 50 years. She doesn't believe that. She's, she's a change maker. So why are the unemployment claims so low, right? If the labor market is really as weak as I think it is, why are so few people filing for unemployment? Now, I've, I've made this uh, argument before, but I'm going to make it again uh, just you know, because not everybody hears every one of my podcasts. But there are three main reasons that I believe that the unemployment rates, unemployment claims, the weekly claims are as low as they are. One is the low level of hiring that has actually taken place over the past you know, eight years or so. Because in order to lay workers off, you first have to hire them, right? You have to hire somebody before you can fire them. And to the extent that companies aren't hiring a lot of people, then they're probably not firing as many people. And so that's probably why fewer people are collecting unemployment che pay checks because fewer people are being hired. So therefore, fewer people are being fired. There's not as much turnover in the labor market. And I would say that a lack of turnover is probably evidence of a weak labor market, that you're not getting a lot of people hired. And so you're not getting a lot of people being fired, right? I mean, it's not everybody that you hire work out. So sometimes you hire somebody and you realize it was a mistake and you let them go. And then you hire somebody else. Maybe they don't work out. Maybe it takes a few shots before you find the right guy. So people move around. They go from job to job. That's not happening, right? You're not getting as much dynamism in the, uh, in the labor market because you're not getting as much hiring. But there's a second reason, and that is the proliferation of independent contractors in the, you know, the world of Uber, right? So if you're an independent contractor, you don't have a job, right? You don't get hired in a traditional sense. You have a contract with a company, right? They, you contract with them, and they agree to pay you maybe a weekly or a monthly fee, for some service that you may be providing, right? You're, and, the, and the service may really involve your labor, but you're not selling your labor as an employee and getting wages. You're an independent contractor and you're like your own company and you are contracting to provide a service, which is basically your labor to another company. Now, if a company decides they no longer need your services as an independent contractor, they just terminate the contract and they say, thank you, we don't, need your services anymore. Uh, here's notice that at, in 30 days or 60 days, whatever your agreement is, uh, you know, we no longer are contracting with you. So that individual has lost his job, right? His independent contracting job, he's lost his livelihood. But what he can't do is file an unemployment claim because you're not an employee, right? You're a business and your business has just lost uh, its customer. So since I think there's a lot of people now that are independent contractors because they really couldn't get jobs. So they decided to become an independent contractor because they couldn't find an actual job. So they started contracting and getting odd jobs. Well, they now lose those jobs and they don't get unemployment benefits. So that's a reason why the claims are lower. And now there's a third claim, third reason. 
you have a lot of people now that have two and three jobs. And so many times when somebody is losing a job, they're not unemployed. They still have two other jobs. They've lost one. Now, there are ways that you can lose a second job and still claim unemployment, even though you have a job and you're working. And there's various formulas. I'm not sure exactly what they are, but depending on how much you're still earning in the job that you still have versus what you're no longer earning in the job that you lost, a lot of people who are losing second and third jobs are not able to claim unemployment benefits on those jobs. So even though they've been fired from a job and they're no longer earning a paycheck at that particular job, they're not able to file for unemployment benefits. So since you have so many people now working two and three jobs apiece, you know, people that used to have one full-time job and now they've cobbled together three crappy part-time jobs, they lose one of those crappy part-time jobs. They can't necessarily go and file unemployment. So people are losing jobs. It's just not being picked up in the statistics. But, you know, when they see these statistics, all of a sudden the traders are rushing in to sell gold and buy the dollar because, aha, this means the Fed is going to raise rates. No, it doesn't. I mean, we've had statistics like this for years. And Apart from December of last year, none of them have resulted in the Fed raising rates. So why does you know everybody always assume that, well, it's going to be a rate hike? Why not just assume that the Fed's going to ignore this data, just like they've ignored all the other data in the past that's actually been stronger than the data now? I mean, that's been my point all along. If the Fed wouldn't raise rates a couple of years ago, when the economic numbers were much better than they are now, what's the point of raising now? I mean, if they didn't go back then, why now? Right. I mean, now, I mean, clearly everything is slowing down. I mean, if you raise rates now, it's like you're helping to push a weakening economy over the cliff that much quicker. Right. At least if a couple of years ago when we were getting those, you know, four, four and a half percent GDP numbers. OK, you know, maybe there was some momentum. Maybe we could we can afford to raise rates a little bit. But for the last three quarters, the GDP growth has averaged just one percent. I mean, I don't think we've had three quarters that week since this so-called recovery began. So why wait for the recovery to be at its weakest point and then you know, decide to lift weight? So people still don't have their arms around that. And you know, so you, the market is still trading. I think, though, this has created another great buying opportunity. I think this sell-off in gold is way, way overdone. Uh, silver as well. The same thing with the rally in the dollar. Even if the Fed does raise interest rates in December— so what? So what? That's not, you know, bullish. This this is not aggressive. I mean, the only thing that's bad for gold is, you know, if Yellen goes Paul Volcker and decides to really jack rates up so that real rates spike up, that would be negative for gold. But just a quarter point rate hike, you know, that's if you look at the rate at which CPI measured inflation is accelerating, the Price increase or inflation rate, if you want to call it that, is going to be rising faster than any Fed rate hike. The Fed is going to be behind the curve the entire time, meaning that any time the Fed raises rates, real rates, which is the inflation rate minus the nominal interest rate, the real rate will be falling. So real interest rates are going to fall even if the Fed hikes nominal rates slightly. Right? So falling real interest rates are going to be extremely bullish for gold and bearish for the dollar. And that's what people have to understand. In fact, if you look at some of the strongest periods in the gold market, it comes when rates are rising, not when rates are falling. And in fact, if you look at bond yields are picking up, they were up again today. 
Oil prices were back above $50 a barrel for much of yesterday and today. They closed down today, back at 49 and change. But oil prices have been rising now. Long-term yields are rising. This is indicative of an inflationary environment that is just beginning. And while I'm on the subject of inflation, let me talk about Alan Greenspan's interview on CNBC this week, where he once again used the ugly words, stagflation. This is uh, Alan Greenspan's forecast. He says that the economy is entering into or has already entered into a stagflationary environment, and that is slow growth or recession coupled with elevated inflation. That is the best possible environment for gold. So, you know, you have all these people that want to believe Janet Yellen and all the good things that she's saying about the economy. Well, why is she any smarter than Alan Greenspan? I mean, everybody loved Alan Greenspan when he was the Fed chairman. He was the maestro. It's the same guy. You know, he's older now, so he should be a little wiser in theory than he was back then. So why even care what Janet Yellen says or even Ben Bernanke? Look at look at Alan Greenspan. Why is it? His words as valid as as Yellen's. And he's saying some very, very negative stuff with respect to the U.S. economy. And I would tell you that of all the people who have been in the Federal Reserve uh, since Greenspan, which would mean Greenspan, Bernanke and Yellen, Greenspan is by far the most knowledgeable when it comes to understanding economics, understanding money. In fact, I think that Greenspan knows he made a bunch of mistakes when he was Fed chairman. He knows that. Ben Bernanke is still clueless, as is Janet Yellen. I think he knows how much he screwed up, and he knows how much uh, Yellen is screwing up and how much Bernanke screwed up, and he's just reluctant to call them out for it because, of course, you know, when you live in a glass house, you know, you can't throw stones, and, you know, he's got a lot of blood on his hands, too, when it comes to uh, the damage uh, being done to the U.S. economy. But he knows it, and I've said this all along, that I thought that Alan Greenspan knows how bad the problem is, and, and that's why he's talking the way he's talking. I mean, he is still sugarcoating it, right? He doesn't want to be an alarmist, but he's saying stagflation. And that is horrible economic news, but it's great for the gold market. And, and so why are people paying attention to uh, what Yellen is saying, but then ignoring what Greenspan is saying? They should be paying more attention to Greenspan uh, because he's got less political pressure on him and just completely ignore anything that's being said by any current uh, voting members of the FOMC who are very, very political in, in their agenda and in their rhetoric. But probably the most interesting comment from uh, Alan Greenspan was when he started to talk about the economy and this whole idea about the new normal, because everybody wants to pretend that, you know, for some strange reason, we don't have the type of economic growth we used to have. Some people want to blame it on, you know, automation or computers or whatever they want to blame it on. But Alan Greenspan blames the right culprit. Alan Greenspan said the reason that the economy is growing slowly is because we have inadequate savings. And he said because we have inadequate savings, we don't make the capital investments that savings finance, and we don't have the increasing uh, labor productivity that we would normally have. And he's 100% right. That's exactly what I've been saying. And I don't think that he knows that because he's listening to me. He knows that because he knows it, just for the same reason that I know it. I mean, he's an Austrian economist. That, that's who he is. He was an Ayn Rand guy. He's a gold bug from, you know, before I even you know, knew what gold was. Uh, so he's a smart guy. 
And so he comes to the same conclusions that I do when he looks at the economy. The problem is a lack of savings, right? There's not enough real legitimate capital investment. We're not increasing productivity. And that's why the economy is weak. I mean, it's not rocket science. And he said that without increasing productivity, not only are we going to have slow growth, but we're going to have higher inflation because we're not going to produce as much. So we have more money chasing a, a diminished supply of goods, and we're going to have this uh, you know, stagflationary economy. But where I disagree with Alan Greenspan is where he blames it. He puts all the blame on Congress and Congress's failure to address entitlements and his failure to rein in entitlements. And, you know, he's been saying that. If you go back on my Shift Radio website and look at the, the letters that Alan Greenspan wrote to me in 1987, this is right after he became Fed chairman and he immediately is confronted by the stock market crash. And instead of allowing the market to function— he intervenes with some cheap money and tries to prop up the market. And I call them out on it. And, you know, he's, you know, responds to me twice. But one of the things he points out, and you can read both these letters on my, you know, Shift Radio website. Just look for them. But he says, look, you know, the important thing is that we get Congress to rein in entitlements, right? We got to get a handle on the deficit and they've got to cut back on entitlements. That was 1987. They haven't done any of that. So he's been talking about, well, it's Congress's fault. They got to deal with entitlements. They're never going to deal with entitlements as long as the Federal Reserve gives them an excuse not to, gives them an out. See, he's saying the reason that we don't have any savings is because the government is crowding it out. The government is borrowing all this money to pay for all these entitlements. And because they're doing all that, we don't have any savings and we can't have capital investment and we can't have productivity growth. So it's because of Congress and its failure to deal with uh, the deficits and entitlements. And that's why the economy is weak. But why is it that Congress doesn't have to make any of the tough choices? Why don't they have to cut spending? Because the Federal Reserve gives them an out. Because the Federal Reserve is saying, OK, you're running these big deficits. Well, we're going to monetize them. We're going to print money and buy up your bonds to keep interest rates artificially low. In fact, we're going to make interest rates artificially low. We're going to push the federal funds down to zero so that we make it extra cheap for you guys to keep borrowing money. And since it's so cheap to borrow money, why not keep borrowing it? I mean, if the Federal Reserve did not cooperate, if the Federal Reserve refused to buy any U.S. Treasuries, and if the Federal Reserve refused to reduce interest rates, what would happen? The government would have to cut spending on entitlements. They'd have no choice because it'd be impossible to finance the spending without the cooperation of the Fed. So on the one hand, you have Alan Greenspan saying it's the government's fault because they're not they're borrowing too much money and they're not addressing entitlements. But the only reason they're not doing it is because the Federal Reserve is making it all possible. The Federal Reserve is the enabler of all this bad behavior. And the whole point of having a independent central bank is so this doesn't happen because this is all politics. Why don't politicians want to deal with entitlements? Because the people who feel entitled won't vote for them. If you say, I'm going to cut Social Security, I'm going to cut Medicare, you're not going to get reelected. So Congress will never deal with entitlements. Now, the whole point of the Federal Reserve is these guys don't stand for election. They're supposed to be able to do things that are unpopular. Now, they can't directly cut Social Security or cut Medicare, but what they can do is refuse to monetize the debts, allow interest rates to really spike up, and now there's a crisis. And now the government is forced to make cuts because they have no choice.
But as long as the Fed spares the government that choice, as long as they spare the economy the negative consequences of higher interest rates, then there's no political pressure at all on the Congress or the president to ever do anything. So for Greenspan to simply blame Congress and not say a word about the Federal Reserve is ridiculous. And of course, obviously, it's self-serving because if he's going to criticize this Federal Reserve, he's got to criticize himself because he was an enabler, too. It's just that now it's been the policy has been expanded uh, to a degree that I'm sure Alan Greenspan himself never contemplated that rates would be at zero for this long and that we would be on the verge of actual negative interest rates. Negative. I mean, can you imagine how much the U.S. government would benefit from negative interest rates given how much money they borrow? You imagine if we had to pay the government to borrow money, how much they would borrow? I mean, look at how much debt they racked up when they had to pay interest on it. Imagine how much more money they would borrow if they got paid to borrow it, if there was a negative interest rate. So this has gone from the sublime to the ridiculous. But Alan Greenspan doesn't want to call out the Fed. But if you actually understand what Greenspan is saying, if he's going to blame the problems on a lack of savings and too much deficit spending, you're pinning the blame right on the Federal Reserve. And of course, how can you not look at the fact that interest rates are zero as a reason that nobody's saving? He is bemoaning the fact that not enough people are saving. Why would anybody save in a zero interest rate world, especially when inflation is positive, which means you have negative real interest rates? Why on earth is somebody going to save? So he's saying we don't have enough savings. Well, duh, look what the Federal Reserve is doing to punish savers. So it all begins and ends with the Fed. You know, Greenspan makes it out like, well, you know, the Fed has no choice, that whatever deficits Congress decides to run, the Federal Reserve has no choice but to you know, hold its nose and monetize it all because they can't they can't force uh, any of these bad decisions on Congress. They don't want the country to have to deal with the short term consequences of higher interest rates. But, of course, that's exactly what they're there to do. If they're going to be independent and, you know, when you want to audit the Fed, they say, oh, we can't audit the Fed because we don't want to sacrifice our independence. What independence? They're not independent. They're a bunch of political hacks. They never take any action for the long term good of the country. That's what they're supposed to do. Politicians think short term. They think election to election. The central bankers are supposed to think about the long term and they're supposed to force vote seeking politicians to do the right thing. Because they have no choice. Instead, all they do is help all the incumbents get reelected, and they've totally failed uh, their job as an independent central bank, which is another reason why it's not just that we should audit the Fed, that we should abolish the Fed, because there's no practical reason for their existence. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.
Hello, this is Peter Schiff. I bet you didn't know that without silver, you wouldn't be hearing this podcast right now or be able to use a computer at all. From laptops to smartphones to TVs to speakers, virtually all modern electronics use silver to conduct electricity. Did you know that the average solar panel uses two-thirds of an ounce of silver to function? And the solar industry is expanding dramatically, not just in America, but in booming developing nations like China and India. Silver is naturally antibacterial and is used extensively in modern medicine. Silver coatings are being added to breathing tubes, bandages, catheters, and other medical instruments to reduce the spread of infections. When antibiotics fail, silver still works. I believe the 21st century will be the century of silver. As fiat currencies continue to collapse and new uses are found for silver every day, the white metal's strong industrial demand and low per ounce price will make it increasingly attractive to savers around the world. At today's prices, people of any age and background can afford to buy some silver. Learn why silver is a smart and reliable investment in my free special report, The Powerful Case for Silver. Visit shiftsilver.com and download it now. The powerful case for silver includes information about silver's amazing chemical properties. It also explains why I believe silver may outperform gold in the coming years. Download the powerful case for silver and educate yourself, your friends, and your family about the white metal. Just visit shiftsilver.com to download my free report. That's shiftsilver.com.